0: Welcome to Pochapa. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Happy Valentine's Day. It's that time of year again when we express our love through roses and champagne and chocolate. Lots of chocolate. In fact, this year in the US, we consume nearly 3 billion pounds of the stuff. That's about 11 pounds of chocolate per person. In case you're wondering, dark chocolate is in fact the more environmentally friendly and healthier choice because no milk is used and there's less sugar than milk chocolate. Dark chocolate's even been linked to lowering blood pressure and heart disease. And at its best, cocoa production has the potential to do no environmental harm. Unfortunately, sustainable management practices aren't that widespread, which leads to damage of the rainforest ecosystems in which cocoa is grown. To avoid these impacts, try and buy chocolate that's fair trade or direct trade and certified. The result is chocolate that's healthier for you, the farmers, and the planet. But what I wanted to know is, where did our love of chocolate originate? To find out, I talk with Amelia Gonzalez, who started her love affair with chocolate as a young girl growing up Mexican in Los Angeles. Before getting into chocolate full time, Amelia's first career was with KPFA Pacifica Radio in Berkeley, where she directed the apprenticeships and the arts and humanities departments. Amelia and her family went to live in Peru and later spent a year in Oaxaca. That's where she became fascinated with the story of cacao and chocolate. In 2012, Amelia took her savings and opened Casa de Chocolates on the corner of Ashby and College Avenue in Berkeley. Ever since, Amelia and her team have been creating chocolates inspired by her passion for Latin American culture, culinary sensibilities, and aesthetics. Amelia also continues her advocacy through formal channels like sitting on the board of youth justice organizations like Speak Out. But more subtly, Amelia uses chocolate to educate and inspire us to see the world from a more sublime perspective. In Amelia's garden, she's laid out all the ancient tools for making chocolate. I start by asking her what the big rock is used for.
1: That is the mortar. The large version of a mortar and pestle is what is called a metate. And it's pre-Columbian. It, it was used initially to make chocolate. So make it into, grind it into a paste. Uh, the cacao bean with the chili generally would be used with chili or used sometimes with corn mixed in and make a paste. And then it would go into what I have a clay pot there and it would be mixed with water and sometimes honey the indigenous people did not really have sugar or didn't have uh, farm animals either so they didn't have milk it was actually with water and it was sometimes a little sour if you will or spicy and sometimes it would have vanilla and cinnamon because those those grow in Mesoamerica we know that it was enjoyed by the olmecas which we're talking about two thousand years BC. Amazing. Right. So And so those they, are the
0: big stone heads yes, that you see in the Yucatan. Yes. Yeah.
1: Now we know that cacao uh, probably came from South America, right? Ecuador and Colombia, because that's where they have the most variety. However, the indigenous there probably ate the pulp. I don't know mm. if you've ever seen a cacao pod, but inside it has this gelatinous seeds that become the beans, right? Which is what we use to make solid chocolate. And they would enjoy the the pulp as fruit. However, the first people that actually did something with it and elaborated it and uh, made it into a liquid and frothed and offered it to the gods were the Olmecas. Mm. And that tradition kept through many of the indigenous cultures in Mesoamerica, The Mayan, the Aztec, the Cholulans, a number of them, the Zapotec in Oaxaca. So that generally is the traditional form that it is used.
0: And did you grow up eating chocolate in that way?
1: Well, I was born and raised in L.A., but I think that everyone uh, of Mexican or Latin American descent, it's like mother's milk chocolate. (laughs) <laughs> you know it just you just grow up with it it becomes part of your everyday life
0: and i mean today a lot of the chocolate in the world comes from places like ivory coast but it all originated in latin america
1: yeah and sadly i mean it's it was such a low percentage of the What we know in the world market comes from Latin America. I think that's changing a little bit uh, with some infusion of money in Ecuador and Colombia and Peru in particular. So you're seeing a little bit more of that. And it's generally not the mass produced 80% of the cacao in the world market is coming from Africa, the Ivory Coast.
0: This is kind of unexpected in your life that you would suddenly get this engaged in chocolate. Like, how how did that journey happen?
1: I was always just curious about the history of cacao. I felt like it was the gift of uh, the Americas. I didn't go acknowledged as such. You know, I think in common... Thinking People think that it's a European thing, and while the Europeans did contribute to make it a solid form, that the cacao itself came from Latin America, and that story, as a journalist, I just thought was a fun story to tell. And I dabbled a little bit with the little stories here and there, but I never really got to say the full history of it through a documentary, which is what I knew. But I took an early retirement because I was a little burnt out. And And you'd been in radio. Yes, I had been in radio for 25 years, uh, mostly behind the scenes, not on the mic. But I just thought, I want to do something fun. And I want to do something that speaks to me culturally, speaks to me actually (laughs) culinary-wise. So I just decided to, to do this, embark on this with a partner 10 years ago. And I just wanted to really celebrate our culture through chocolate.
0: It's pretty daunting to do what you did, and yet you did it with such gusto. Had you ever made a chocolate before?
1: I don't know if you're familiar with mole. Mole is a savory dish. However, it is made with chocolate. So I've I've played with it. I had the opportunity when I was uh, a mother of young children. Uh, my husband and I packed up and we moved to Oaxaca. And so I got to play with chocolate there and experience what it was like to have it be such a, an integral part of the culture and the culinary experience. Uh, we also lived in Peru and saw that chocolate had a role there, right? That that everybody embraced chocolate in a way that is beyond the dessert, beyond the chocolate bar that we know, but somehow it's it's just part of one's life. So I, I had the opportunity to to experience that, and that just made me really want to explore more. So I hadn't played with chocolate as as candy and as bonbons as we had, but I had played with chocolate in cooking.
0: Anyone who's ever seen Casa de Chocolates, it's not really chocolate, it's more little artworks in a box. Like I grew up in England, but you come here, it's like Hershey's, it's the it's the worst least edible form of chocolate. So mm-hmm. what you're doing feels like almost revolutionary.
1: <laughs> well, it's going back to the roots of chocolate, right? It's going back. It's very um when you think about it, it's it's using less ingredients and god bless Hershey who really wanted to make Chocolate more accessible, right? Because prior to that, uh, it had been only enjoyed by royalty and only through international. Um, when you think of Spain, keeping it a secret for over a hundred years, and it would only be shared through the royalty. So Hershey had a good idea in mind when they thought that they would make it more accessible for people. Uh, however, of course, you start, you know, putting. Additives and wax and all kinds of stuff that don't really belong in chocolate.
0: It's unrecognizable. The taste of your chocolate compared to what you buy on the shelf. They probably should have kept it secret longer from Hershey. So what yeah. is the, so <laughs> so the Spanish were a pretty uh, hideous bunch of colonizers with Cortez and uh-huh. but one of the things they stole was chocolate. I mean that's one you hear about the the thirst and blood for gold, but Mm -hmm. chocolate is one of the more enduring things that they took.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because they didn't really like it, Mm. but they knew it was of value. The Aztecs and the Mayans, they used the beans as currency, Mm. and so they knew it had a high value, and they were offered when the Spanish came, and they added the milk and they added the sugar, and it became a drinking beverage that they would share in Spain.
0: So you decide, like, mid-career to, to go full in on making a chocolatier of yourself. Like, what was your vision? Because it's very unique, what you do.
1: I think initially my vision that was that we were going to go to Latin America and we were going to start sourcing directly. Usually you're already importing it fermented already. Uh, and you're importing it and it, it would require a big grinder. And that was not something that we were really interested in or felt that we could compete with the local markets that were already here. We had Cho at the time, Scharfenberger at the time, that were here that were doing that and had a lot of the resources to do it. We really want to explore the flavors of Latin America and and play with those flavors at the end of already a, a product. So we do work with Cotard. They're a local company. They're part of the World Cacao Foundation. They engage in fair trade and they're socially responsible. So we thought that we would partner up with them and source from them and source their Latin American mixes uh, so that we could be true to what our brand and our vision would be. So that's what we, that's who we partner
0: with. That makes sense. Most people, I don't think, have any idea what, what the bean looks like.
1: Yeah, well, it's a... You know, they're beautiful. They're multicolored. You have you have three types of cacao. That is the criollo, which is kind of like the creme la creme. And criollo. is that one of
0: those? Because one of them it's, looks like an avocado, and the other looks like a mango.
1: Yeah. Well, they're generally the. Uh, the this is a real pod, the one that looks like a uh, avocado.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, it's just dried up. Okay. So you can hear the, the real beans in there that okay. are probably really dried up as well, and that's what it looks like. the The one that looks like a mango, although much bigger, and they could grow up to being a foot long. Mm and uh, probably six inches in diameter. That replicates a criollo, and then there's a forastero that's a little bigger, the, uh, which is the one that you'll find in Africa because it lends itself to be mass-produced more. It's a little hardier, and then you have the trinitario that's a, a hybrid of both. I went to Chiapas last year. I went to a a small farm that has been there for a long time. I want to say that I spoke to a third-generation gentleman that had been working in his family farm, and he... It was fun to to actually be in that farm because the most flavorful cacao grows in a biodiverse atmosphere. It mm. it doesn't do very well monocropped and it loses a lot of its characteristics. When you're growing a cacao tree or trees, and they're next to oranges and next to mangoes, you could actually taste it mm. in the cacao if you opened the cacao pod and put the gelatinous fruit in your mouth, you would taste the biodiversity hmm. in there. And it's just its just so much fun to yeah. see that.
0: That must have been amazing to go to Chiapas.
1: Yeah, it was great. It was great.
0: And just make that journey. When I ate your chocolates, because I could actually taste the difference between them as opposed to most chocolates that all taste the same. Mm. But has your palate become more attuned to the different textures and variability of what the cacao tastes like
1: well yes Uh, actually yes it has it's it's funny because you could sometimes taste a hundred percent cacao and which is known to be bitter it's very bitter however you could taste the remnants of berries or citrus it's just very subtle but very, very true. And of course with chocolate, it's made to melt in your mouth, right? I mean, it's made to melt with body temperature, right? <laughs> so it's just great when you have that full experience of letting it sit in your mouth and letting it melt and you're, you're able to know and appreciate the different characteristics of chocolate.
0: So it's coming up on Valentine's Day. What's the connection, Amelia, between chocolate and romance?
1: I believe it's a theobromine that's in the chocolate, right? It's the active ingredient in cacao that we know has an effect on us physically. I mean, it has caffeine too. And oftentimes people think that that energy boost that you get is the caffeine. And while it could be some of it, the theobromine actually has an effect as well. We know that it opens your blood vessels a little bit, that it releases endorphins. So the actual feel-good feeling that chocolate gives you has a scientific basis for that. You know, that's the theobromine that I think is uh, it's acting. So yes, it makes you feel good.
0: So tell me about the cultural aspect, because you didn't just decide, I'm going to start a business that brings in cacao from Chiapas and other places, you actually thought creatively about how to express it in a different way. Like, what? tell me about your vision of how you integrated culture and identity into chocolate.
1: Well, every, every chocolate or every flavor that we have has a history in Latin America, whether it, it originated there or it's become part of the culture. Uh, such as we play with quinoa. We have a bar. We call it the Inca Crunch because quinoa, uh, originates from Peru, from the Andes, right? That's one example. We also have a caramel that's traditional in central Mexico that's made with goat's milk. And it's got that tanginess of goat milk. And it's, it's really fun to play with. And that's called cajeta. And I just have fun sharing that experience with people. Right now we're working with Amaranth and trying to figure out how we're going to bring it in because a- Amaranth was prohibited by the Spaniards when they came to, to Mexico because they believed that, and it does have some, uh, protein properties and they didn't want the indigenous to get stronger. Hmm. So they actually prohibited from Mexico. So I I just love that part of the story. It's amazing. It's it's fascinating to me. We play with pumpkin seeds, uh, pepitas, and uh, and mole. We actually have a mole bar and a mole bonbon. And once again, that just kind of shows you the complexity of the chilies. We use over 11 type of chilies in the mole. And only one of them... So only, good. Yeah. And only one of them is spicy, is the chile de árbol. But it has that rich chili flavor. And it's really funny that people think it's going to be super hot because they taste the chili. However, they're they're surprised that it's not so hot, that they can't eat it.
0: And it really feels like you're eating a little piece of Mexican culture. Tell us about like how you decided to you paint them.
1: We paint them. You play with the design and the paint. And then you add the melted chocolate in there, and it all has to be a similar temperature. So you always have to be conscientious of what is called the tempering of the chocolate so that it sticks. And the, the of course, the coloring that we use, it's cocoa butter based because you wouldn't be able to have it stick if it was anything else. Well, we just play with them. We just kind of sprinkle everything on top and it should be fun. I always tell my employees, if you're not having fun, then something's wrong. Like (laughs) something is really wrong if you're not having fun with chocolate and the production of it.
0: And are you still having fun?
1: It's been challenging. COVID has been extremely challenging uh, to keep my employees safe and do business in this time. So that part has not been so fun, mm. but generally people get in such a good mood. When I worked in radio and I was part of management, nine out of 10 times, somebody came into the office to yell at me.
0: <laughs> yeah. And now.
1: <laughs> and now when I'm talking to somebody, you know, nine out of 10 times, they're smiling and I, it's so easy to make somebody happy because I'm like, here, have a piece of chocolate.
0: But you must be like the chocolate queen. I mean, you probably can't go anywhere without someone assuming Amelia is going to bring chocolate.
1: It's my calling card. I, I always bring it. I have to.
0: And what's your favorite chocolate?
1: My favorite chocolate? Yeah. Wow, it depends on my mood. I, I really love the pepitas. And then we have one that is, surprisingly, it is a milk chocolate bar that took me probably two years to figure out how to replicate. If you went to Mexico and you were at an open market, you would ask for café de la olla, which literally translated means coffee of the clay pot. And it's really just coffee beans thrown in with cinnamon, vanilla, cloves, and they just have it boiling all day. And you would think that it would taste horrible horrible but it tastes delicious and they also add piloncillo which is the unrefined sugar once the the sugar is ground it's the unrefined it's super dark it's not it's not brown sugar it's actually less refined than brown sugar and they add that to it to sweeten it and it's delicious. And I just knew that I wanted to replicate that. And so that's one that is very popular with Mexicans because they know exactly what I was trying to replicate and they're really happy with it. So that's, that's one that I really like to have for breakfast. After dinner with a nice glass of tequila, I like the Valencia orange. It's spectacular. Wait.
0: So how have you kept alive, Amelia, during these difficult times? Like, who's keeping it going in terms of making sure that even in these tough times, we all need chocolate? And how have you stayed afloat?
1: Well, I don't do a whole lot of advertising. I don't have that as a part of my budget. And the reason why is because I'd rather use that for philanthropy. So we support a lot of nonprofits. And they've been really good to me. When they've done their virtual galas, they have approached me and said, this year we're going to pay full price. Mm. You have given us so much that this year we're going to pay full price and buy hundreds of uh, your chocolate boxes and give to our, our guests. And that way we could support you. So that's been something that has been multiplied through many of the nonprofits that we have supported in the last 10 years. And so I feel really blessed and lucky. I had to raise prices and because I decided to give my workers a stipend to work during this time. And I, I let my customers know, Hey, I'm going to have to raise prices. And they're like, raise your prices, please, whatever it's going to take to, for you to stay alive, do it. And so it's just, I just really feel the support of the community that we've developed in the last 10 years.
0: Mm. I mean, you've helped bless people and now they're blessing you, which is really moving. What would your recommendation be? A lot of people were in your job where nine out of 10 people coming to their office are grumpy and miserable and you turned it around like that. That's such an inspiring message when many people don't have hope, especially now. Like how are you thinking about it 10 years on and how would you recommend people view their lives through that lens?
1: I always believe in strengthening the weakest link as a business owner. You, you always want to raise everybody and you start at the bottom. You know, you start with the part-time high school student and you want to have them have a voice in the workplace and feel like they, they have a legitimate voice. And, and you do that with the kitchen uh, staff and you, and, You know, the first thing that when they bring a problem, chances are, when they raise a problem with me, chances are they also have the answer. So oftentimes I just say, hey, okay, let's brainstorm. What do you think you need to make this work? And so I just feel that letting people have a voice in their everyday environment really helps.
0: I love that. And tell me about your daughter. Yana is focused on environmental justice. How did you raise a a daughter that is so focused on lifting people up? Wow. Because that feels like part of the message in your chocolate too.
1: I feel oftentimes that she raised me.
0: I feel that about my parents too. Uh
1: (laughs) Uh-huh. When she was five or four, we were driving along the Piedmont Avenue where there's all these big houses, right? And she was looking out the window and she says, mommy, who lives in these houses? And I, of course, thought that she was going to say, I want to live in one of those houses. And I said, oh, probably professors and families. And she's like, like a family, like four people? And I was like, yeah, like that. She's like, why don't they open their house and have some of the homeless in there? I think when you're raising children, you, you model the behavior that you want. And I think that that's kind of what we've done. We've always been knowledgeable of our privilege and knowing that comes with a responsibility.
0: Talking of responsibility, you also have really worked on training your team to become the, the next generation of chocolatiers.
1: When uh, my head chocolatier, who's my highest paid employee, who's extremely talented, and you would never know that. He was a busboy when he walked in, and he's learned this, and he's so sure of himself. It's a transformation that actually has taken place, and I love that part of it. As much as I like the chocolate part, I really love the training component to that and empowering people that way. The, my general manager who just recently left for a better opportunity, she stayed with me and she, she learned how to manage people. She was so meek and so quiet. And I was like, baby, either you're going to be bossed or you're going to be a boss. So you have to pick one. And I would rather you be a boss.
0: It really feels like the secret of of chocolate you're revealing for the first time, which is that it had indigenous roots, that it had roots that aren't about Hershey's Bar, but really are about a a deep sense of culture. And does that surprise people? Like, it, it feels like a discovery to me through your chocolate. Mexico is this incredible country with all this rich culture and history and love and community, and you're lifting it up in a really beautiful way. How do people react to that?
1: We spend a lot of time with the rhetoric as opposed to really speaking to other parts of one's experience. And so everyone has an experience with chocolate or want to have an experience with chocolate. And so I, f- I find that I could provide that for them and also educate them along the way. And it doesn't feel as threatening as if I were sitting them down and having this conversation about, you you know, you have, you have to thank the indigenous people of the Americas when you eat every single piece of chocolate that you have. That wouldn't get me very far and it certainly wouldn't make me popular the way I am. So, uh, by taking chocolate everywhere. But you could engage in a conversation about the peanut butter, bonbon, Inca. Oftentimes, people don't even know what Inca means. You take people where they're at. And chocolate is a nice entry way to do that.
0: A huge thank you to Amelia Gonzalez for sharing her story of chocolate with Podship Earth today. By infusing her chocolates with love and culture and the flavors and history of the Americas, taking one small bite becomes a transformative experience. Taste is primordial and seems to bypass all the clutter of our brains. When I was 18, I hitchhiked and took local buses through the Yucatan and Chiapas. I woke up one day next to a giant Olmec head in the jungle. For me, eating one of Amelia's chocolates was like taking a miraculous time travel pill that brought me back to the essence of Mesoamerica and to my time in Palenque. Through chocolate, Amelia and Casa de Chocolates has made advocacy not only palatable, but delicious, as my grandmother Lena would have said. Of course, Lena would also have given us a box of chocolates with a tiny bite taken out of each bonbon. But for your very own box of intact chocolates, visit CasadaChocolates.com. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld. I hope you have a very sweet Valentine's.